Well, today as we celebrate Easter, we're concluding our look at the story of Esther. Now, this is something where when God just kind of dropped this in my heart, it wasn't my original uh, series I was going to be doing in this time period. And even in this like idea that you usually don't uh, end a series on Easter, you usually start something new with Easter. And just God brought this to me. I never had studied it in, as in-depth as I feel like I have for this particular uh, series. And the realization of how many parallels between the uh, the story of Jesus going to the cross and the resurrection that come out of the book of Esther. If you've been here the last several weeks, you've heard them week in and week out, and there's more yet today. Let me encourage you that if you've missed a single message in the series, go back and watch on YouTube so you can see how God uh, can connects all these dots, because one of the things I said in the first week of the series, Esther is one of two books in the Bible that it does not reference God's name anywhere there. But we know that God is working even when it seems like he's quiet. A prime example of that is yesterday. On Good Friday, we celebrate Jesus going to the cross on our behalf. Today, we celebrate Jesus being resurrected. But on Saturday, when he's silent, then in those periods of your life where God seems silent, God's still working. God is still active. Even in moments where you say, you know what, I don't feel it. I don't have the energy. I don't have the life. I don't have the passion. God's still working. God's still present. This half the room gets it. So we're going to, church, I'm going to start preaching just over here. I'm going to move my, church, Jesus is alive. Okay, I don't see anywhere near the excitement. Jesus, guess what, wait, wait for it. He's alive. There we go. Now we got some excitement going. But here's the thing that I need you to realize is that in the story of Esther, there's moments where it feels like everything is falling apart and nothing makes sense. But Esther and Mordecai, they keep doing that which they know God has called them to do so that they can further the kingdom of God. They're doing what they need to do. We've come a long way through the book of Esther. Let me just give a quick recap. We start with a very petty and foolish king who gets rid of his queen and then brings in a beautiful young Jewish uh, girl to be the new queen. That's Esther. Esther has an uncle named Mordecai who she helps then promote up in, uh, the, in the kingdom and that he wouldn't bow down to the second in command, Haman. And as a result, Haman hatches a wicked plot to not only kill Mordecai, but to wipe out all the Jewish people. Esther sets out a mission impossible to try and stop this plan of Haman. She accomplishes the mission against impossible odds and through unique, miraculous coincidences. Proud Haman was put to death while her humble and patient uncle Mordecai and herself receive uh, promotion within the kingdom. Mordecai is promoted to the second in command over the entire empire. That Haman is there to try and destroy Mordecai. And ultimately Mordecai replaces uh, Haman and gets everything that was his in the first place. Ultimately we can look at this entire book being about two kinds of people. The proud and the humble. It's about what happens to those who are arrogant and what happens to those who are meek. That even though God's not mentioned, we see his hand at work all through the story, destroying the proud and raising up the humble. And the book of Esther really could be summarized by two verses that we find in scriptures. First, Proverbs 16, 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The perfect verse for Haman. And the other verse is James 4.10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. The perfect verse for Esther and Mordecai. 
And let me encourage you that what you're going to hear in this message today is this. You have a conscious choice to choose to be on the prideful side or on the humble side. And you can say, well, this is an Old Testament story. It's an Old Testament story that it pulls itself into today. You're going to see the parallels where you get to choose that you can follow in Haman's path or you can follow in Esther's path, but it's up to you to make that choice. And really the ending of this story, Esther 9 through 10, uh, chapters 9 and 10, is a summary of these two themes, that the pride that leads to destruction and the humility that leads to honor. And so it's a good reminder that death to self will come one way or another. Either we can destroy our pride and our ego or God will do it for us. And when God does it, it usually doesn't come to a good ending. But if we willingly lay down ourselves, just like Jesus willingly laid himself down on the cross, you'll be amazed at what God is able to do when we allow ourselves to not exalt ourselves, but God to exalt us. It may not always happen in the timing that we want it to happen in, but when we do it the way God wants us to be, uh, to be done, we'll be amazed at how God is able to do things more than we can even think or imagine. And so before we, we dive further into this, I want you to go ahead and just repeat after me. And I want you to say it like Jesus is alive, okay? Heavenly Father, your word is written in my mind and hidden in my heart. Your word is a lamp onto my feet and a light onto my path. I will seek you with all of my strength. My greatest desire is to be a disciple and to make more disciples. I will live my life according to your word. Your word, O oh Lord, is eternal. We're going to start in chapter 9 and read verses 1 through 5 to begin. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, and on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them." First point that we're going to bring out today is this, is that the Jews destroyed their enemies. Here's the thing. On the 13th day of the 12th month, so this is about nine months that have passed since chapter 8. This is the day that Haman had chosen by casting lots to eradicate the Jews. If we go back in uh, earlier around chapter 3, chapter 4, we see that Haman had launched this plan of I'm going to have a plan where we're able to go out and just obliterate the Jews. We're going to get rid of all of them. And how am I going to pick the date to do this? I'm going to cast lots, essentially like rolling dice. And all of a sudden I'm going to roll this and this is going to tell me what month. I'm going to roll them again. It's going to tell me what day. And so it's in true God fashion. It goes to the 12th month. It pushes it off as far as possible. And so this is the day that Haman had been looking for, but Haman is no longer even alive because he's already met the death that he had meant for Mordecai on that giant spear that he had built. 
And so in this moment, he's not even alive to see any of this happen. Last week we talked about this of what was going to happen because it would have been nice for the story to have ended after chapter 8. If the story had ended after chapter 8, it would have been and happily ever after. But there's still something to deal with. You see, Haman being second in command, he had the signet ring. He was able to make laws on behalf of the king. Uh, the, the king did not make this law on his own, but he empowered someone else to make the law for him. And so in this culture, that the laws that were being made could not be reversed. But the beautiful thing is you can make a law to layer on top of a law. And so in this moment, Mordecai is now second in command. Mordecai and Esther, like we talked about last week, made a law that the Jewish people were now allowed to defend themselves against anybody who came up against them. And what happened? All of the leadership started saying, you know what, we're following after Mordecai because we believe in his God. And there's power in his God, that God has elevated him, so we're going to follow after him. And so very few people now are coming against them. That Mordecai's law was different. They weren't allowed to just go on a killing spree, but anyone who came against them and fought them, were, they were allowed to defend themselves against them. And so the leaders of the empire were afraid. They came in line, and it changed the situation. We get to Esther uh, 9, 6 through 10, and this is what we see happen. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. I, I want to stop for a second. This goes from the entire kingdom about to wipe out the entire Jewish population in a nation that is massive. This is one of the biggest kingdoms that has ever existed on, in, in human history and only 500 men end up dying through the process of this. And so here's the individuals. It references this particularly. And also killed Parshandatha, Delphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adelai, Arditha, Pamashta, Erishai, Eridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamathatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they lay no hands on the plunder. So what we see here is it's the death of Haman's ten sons. God didn't just stop with Haman. God is wiping out all of Haman's sons. And why is that important? First off, I just read the passage. I, by the way, I practiced those names this morning. I was ready today. But I want you to go ahead and show this next slide with this picture. This is what the original Hebrew would have looked like. This is unique. This is not how Hebrew is written. The Hebrew text here does something with these names that's done here and no other list in anywhere in Scripture. In the original Hebrew, they're organized in a column spaced out and set apart from the rest of the text. It's a strange practice. And so many have suggested that writing it this way visually expresses the idea that these enemies of Israel have been set apart for destruction. And it's like a hit list in Scripture of the enemies of God in Israel. And guess what? God won. But aside from that, the person who wrote this text, remember, we don't know who wrote the book of Esther, tried to bring attention to these names, and I think it was for two reasons in particular. First, this list of names, and in fact, the men are being put to death, is a fulfillment of prophecy. In Exodus 17, 14, and Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, God says that he will have war with the Amalekites from generation to generation until they are destroyed. In 1 Samuel 15, God commanded King Saul to completely destroy the Amalekites the moment that it was supposed to happen. But Saul didn't obey. 
You notice when you don't obey, you think, well, it just impacts me. Sometimes when you don't obey and do what God has called you to do, it impacts generations after generations. It impacts your kids and your grandkids. Some moment you have to say, I'm making the conscious decision that I will follow after God. King Agag was allowed to live because Saul didn't obey. And at the end of the chapter, Agag is killed by the hand of Samuel, but still somehow Agag's children are allowed to escape in 600 years later. Long after Saul is gone, long after Samuel is gone, long after Agag is gone, 600 years later we come against uh, Haman the Agite and his 10 sons. The historical enemy of the Jews and, and of God. But now that Haman has been killed, his 10 sons are now gone too. And now that his 10 sons are gone, the name of the Amalekites is blotted out of history forever just as God had promised. God always fulfills his promises even if it takes 600 years. And here's one of the things I need you to realize. Even if it takes 600 years, even if God makes a promise, you say, you know what? I'm going to be faithful in doing what God has called me to do, and I'm going to be consistent day in and day out. I might not be seeing the answer yet, but the key to that is I'm not seeing it yet. That doesn't mean that I won't see it. It doesn't mean that my children won't see it. It doesn't mean that my grandchildren won't see it. I'm going to be faithful and just trust in God. You see, it's really easy. Well, I'm not seeing what I want to see. I'm not seeing the, the answers. It's not coming this week, this month, this year, this decade. So I'm just going to give in and throw in the towel. Let me just encourage you. It's, it's always fantastic on moments like today where Easter, where we get together and we celebrate Jesus. But where is everybody when it's a prayer night on a Thursday night? You say, oh, I've got too much to do. I've got to catch up on my television. I've got to catch up on this. I've got to catch up on that. If we put more focus in on our prayer life, we'd be amazed at seeing how God would come through and likely faster. The problem is too often we treat God as if God is a little checkbox for the week. When in reality, we need to act like Jesus is alive 365 days a year, not just when it's convenient for us and we get to have a nice little get-together as a holiday. Jesus is alive. This is just the day that we were, we kind of put a special emphasis on it. But Jesus is alive every single day. But even as significant as that is, the truth is that this list, there's something even better here. It's something that if you've been here any length of time, you know that I like digging into. And so often it happens around genealogies. These are the passages of the scripture that are very easy to read over. Because here's a list of names. I don't know what this list of names mean. It just, it's getting in the way from me starting my Bible reading from the day and getting to the end of it. So I'm just going to kind of skim over it quickly. But every once in a while, God just kind of challenges me. It's like, why are those names mentioned? Why are they being referenced? What, what significance do they have here? Now, if we look at Haman, Haman's kind of stuck up on himself a little bit. A key word there being self, because if we look back at the original Persian language, each of these names of his sons includes the word self in the Persian language. Kind of reveals a little bit about Haman. That he was so stuck on himself that he named his sons after aspects of himself. Goes back to what I started with. You can be proud or you can be humble. But if you choose to be proud, eventually God will humble the proud. 
And you hope that when you are humbled that it doesn't require you dying on a giant stake and your name and your family being blotted out of human history. But if, he, if that's what it needs to be, that's what it needs to be. So we're going to look at this list really quick. Go ahead and throw this up here. So here's all the names that we have. Parshandatha, uh, the curious self of I'm curious. Delphon means self-pity. Ashpatha means self-sufficient. Portha means self-indulgent. Adaliah means weak self or more likely humble self. How many of you know someone who has a false humility of look at me how humble I am? The Aradath means self-assertive. Parmashta means self-ambition. Arisai means bold self or I am bold. Aradai means dignified self or I am superior. And Vaishatha means self-righteous. All of these selves needed to be put to death. Now, you might be able to relate to one of these selves, or there, maybe there's a self within you that needs to be put to death. But ultimately, Jesus Christ went to the cross so that our self could be put to death and we could be resurrected in Christ and be a new creation. About 10 of you got excited about that. We are a new creation because of Christ Jesus. Amen? And so all of this needs to be put to death in order for victory to be accomplished. See, that's the thing is it would have been nice to end after chapter 8 of Esther, but we needed chapter 9 to come so that our self could be put to death in order to walk into true victory with Jesus Christ. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, and Haman's downfall is almost complete now. Not only is he dead, not only was his plan to annihilate the Jewish people failing miserably, but now all his sons are dead as well, whom he arrogantly named after aspects of himself. His pride is coming to this great downfall. There's two extremes in this wonderful story. Haman tried to exalt himself and ended up dying with all of his plans coming to absolute nothing. Here's the thing you need to realize about this world. Our best laid plans are nothing. Our best laid plans, you, you might be remembered for a generation, most of us, maybe two generations, but ultimately very few people are remembered hundreds and, and hundreds of years later. But we're still talking about Haman's mistakes Esther's in uh, Mordecai's exaltation. It's still here today. Esther, on the other hand, in Esther chapter 4 said, If I perish, I perish. She was willing to die to do what was right, yet she was honored and she was blessed and she was raised up as a queen with her family and her people being there still to honor her. That's exactly why we celebrate on Easter Sunday. Satan and his pride thought that he could destroy Jesus on the cross and destroy the people following after Jesus. But the same weapon that he used to destroy God or thinking he's going to destroy God ultimately destroyed him. What he used to try to destroy God ultimately destroyed him. We're going to try this again. You see, because I'm excited and I need you to match my excitement here. Satan used the cross to try to destroy our God. And our God was working something in the background that Satan never saw coming. You see, so often we put our thoughts and our emphasis, well, Satan's doing this to me. Satan's coming after me. Who really cares what Satan comes after you with? Because Satan is a defeated enemy. Like, imagine for a moment. Think of whatever your favorite sport is. Imagine you're up a hundred to nothing, and all of a sudden they score a basket on you. They score a goal on you. They get a touchdown in the garbage minutes at the end of a game. That means 
nothing. Oh, congratulations, you won this small little battle. Guess what? My God won the war, and he did it so long ago. You see, we really approach this so often that Satan is this big, bad monster that you see in horror movies. And he has all this power. Satan is nothing more than a little chihuahua that you can kick aside talking into a giant sound system. He's got a big voice. He's got zero power because the last thing that he had was three nails and a cross and a hammer, and it failed. The last thing that he had was, I'm going to put the body in the grave. It failed. So we need to stop living like we have no life and no energy because Jesus is alive. It's not Friday anymore. It's not Saturday and we're walking in silence. It's Sunday and Jesus is alive. We're not in an Esther chapter 7, chapter 8 world where what's going to happen? How's this going to work out? We're now in Esther 9 and 10 where Esther and Mordecai have won. They've won the battle. Self has been put to death. And now they're able to walk into a new day. So here's your two options. You can live like Haman, trying to serve yourself and ultimately die. Or we can live like Esther, give of ourselves and be blessed and honored in the process of it. As we magnify and glorify and point towards Jesus Christ. Self will always die, whether it's now or it's later, but the outcome vastly differs depending on your choice. Will you die to self now willingly so that Jesus Christ can be in you and accomplish what he wanted to on that cross, or will you die naturally simply because you didn't follow after him? Choose to die to yourself now like Esther and Mordecai. Receive the blessing and honor. Allow God to exalt you, not yourself. You see, so often we want to exalt ourselves because everybody look at me. There's a reason why scripture says that some people will go before God and say, but God, didn't I do this in your name? And God will say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's not about what you accomplish. It's not about how many things you can plan, how many nice things you can say. It's about did you love Jesus and listen to Jesus or did you do life for your own purposes? Mark 8, 36 says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? It's not about you, it's about Jesus. When we are in Jesus and we allow ourselves to be put to death, we are a new creation and we re reflect Jesus. We need to make Jesus famous. We then move into Esther 9, verses 20 through 32. And it says, and Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agite, the son of Hamathatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim after the term 
Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offsprings and all who joined them that whatever failed, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into the disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth. That these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring. With regard to their fasts and their lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. So now we have the Feast of Purim inaugurated. In this passage right here, chapter 10 is very short in comparison, but this passage right here puts into place the, the festival, the Feast of Purim as a reminder that we're going to celebrate this every single year on the 14th and the 15th of the last month to say this is what God did for us. That when we thought we were defeated, they went through a year period where in the beginning of the year that they thought they were going to be wiped out. Esther fights it back against the plan. They're able to get Haman put to death. About two months pass in the beginning of chapter 8. When those two months pass in the beginning of chapter 8, that they're devising a plan. They send out a letter, hey, at the end of the year, this is what it's going to be. How many of you know, though, when seven, eight, nine months go by and you know that something's hanging over your head, you don't know what the fruition of it's going to be, you don't know what the report's going to be, you don't know what the job situation's going to be, you don't know what the medical report's going to be, and seven, eight, nine months are hanging over your head, and I don't know what to do. It can be a very difficult time. God's already won. You see, it would have been really easy for the Jewish people to say, you know what, like, I know you wrote this new law, but what if everybody turns against us again? Because they already wrote this first law. What if there's another law on top of that law? And what if something changes again? Trust God. Allow God to exalt you. Don't live in pride, but live in humility, just like Jesus Christ. When we look at Jesus, the ultimate example of it is when Jesus went to the garden and said, God, if there is any other way, let this pass. But if there's not, I will go to the cross on behalf of the people because I love them. And here's the thing you need to hear today. Even if it was just for you, Jesus still would have went to the cross because he cared that much about you. You see, it's so easy to even walk into church and say, well, God loves that person and this person because they're doing all these things. But my past, God knew about your past when he sent Jesus before you even had a past. And here's the thing, is you need to be the one to let your past go. That might be yourself. You're holding on to the, the self of your past. Well, this is who I was. This is what I struggled with. This is, you don't know what I've done. Yeah, I may not know what you've done, but God already knew what you did, and he sent Jesus to take care of what you did. And we have to be individuals that say, you know what? Allow it to go away. 
So they have this feast of Purim that comes into place that says, you know what? Remember that entire year where you were worried about what was going to happen? God won. You were scared about what was going to happen. God won. That's why we have to have moments in our life where we celebrate. You say, this is the moment where I accepted Jesus into my life. Let's celebrate. Let me come back and yearly be grateful that on this moment, at that day, at this location, with that person, that's when I accepted Jesus into my life. Or it comes to maybe something like water baptism and say, you know what, this is my moment where I publicly got in front of a group of people and said, I'm going to follow after Jesus and give it everything that I've got. The things in my past, the things that I like doing, they went away because I was buried under the water, that I died with Christ, I died to myself, and I came back up a new creation in Christ Jesus. That it was about Jesus, it's always about Jesus, and we have to have these moments of celebration. In this moment of, of Pur uh, in Purim, that this is the thing that I love about it. The holiday was named after casting lots. Who's the individual that cast lots in this story? It was Haman. The holiday is simply named after Haman casting lots to pick a day to kill all the Jews. The name of the holiday is essentially Haman lost. And so every year they celebrated. Hey, remember when Haman lost? He, he lost a year ago. He lost five years ago. He lost 10 years ago. That they still, the Jewish people still celebrate this today. And guess what? Haman still lost because they're still here. And here, watch this parallel, how it perfectly ties into place. Easter is the remembrance of the cross. It's when Satan said, you know what? I tried this with Haman to wipe out the Jews. How about I try it again through Jesus, and I'm going to hang Jesus on a cross, I'm going to kill Jesus, and then I'm ultimately going to win, except for the fact that he loses again. Satan has no new tricks. Satan continues to use the same tricks over and over and over again, and the only reason why he's ever successful is because you allow him to be successful, and because your loved ones allow him to be successful. Satan has no new power. Think of it like a magician. If, you're ever, if you've ever watched a magic show, what the amazing thing is, is there's only like six or seven different types of magical tricks. Like sleight of hand, you're hiding things, you're doing different things, that uh, you're misdirecting, you're trying to get someone to look at a different spot. Satan's trying to impress you with the same magic trick done slightly different. Like, hey, instead of wearing a black suit today, I'm going to wear a red suit. Or I'm going to wear a green suit, and I'm going to try and just... It's the same magic trick. And when you look at it, well, there's a studio audience and they're all watching it. They're probably in on it and they probably had to sign non-disclosed uh, 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 paperwork so that they don't tell what the magic trick was. You, you look at it and like, well, everybody's in on it. Satan's after your soul. He will do whatever he can because he's trying to hurt God and God's already won. I mean, imagine this. Imagine that you walked into America today and you got to pick whatever uh, team was your favorite team to root for. That location didn't matter, logos and colors didn't matter, who your parents rooted for doesn't matter. How many of you are going to pick the worst team in the league to root for? There's no way. There's no way you would. Because you would go for, if you had no loyalty towards anything, why wouldn't you pick a winner? But that same thing comes into this conversation. When you get to go between, I'm going to pick after God or I'm going to pick after Satan. I'm going to pick after the almighty creator of the universe who made everything, 
who made me, who loves me, who cares about me. Or I'm going to pick the loser who got himself kicked out of heaven, who's trying to destroy and try to replicate everything that the Almighty Creator is doing. And when we have the Bible, we have the end of the story. We know what happens to him. I mean, let's take this one step further. We're going to talk betting in the church for a moment. Imagine you're making a bet and you were able to go into the future for just a moment. And you're able to see that the winner of the Super Bowl was going to be this team and they're going to win by this much. And then you went back into today. Who would you put your money on? The team that's already, that you know to win or the team that you're going to know will lose? If you put your money on the team that you know will lose, I'm just going to be, be honest here, you're stupid. <laughs> like, I'm going to put $100 on the losing team. Who would do that? But yet people do that with their souls. Because they wager that well, it might just work out if I try doing this. It might just work out all of a sudden, like, I'm going to try and do this my own way. You need to put yourself to death so that you can live in Christ. It's these moments of saying, Jesus, you get to have everything in my life. This brings us to the home stretch of the, the book of Esther, and it gets us to chapter 10. And it's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to go through it really quick. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea in all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of uh, Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitudes of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people." Chapter 10 references this Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia. We hear this book referenced throughout the book of Esther, but here's the thing. Historians and archaeologists have never been able to find this book. The king's book about the account of what happened doesn't exist today. They haven't been able to find it, at least to any research that I've done. But here's what I do know. The King of Kings book still exists and we've been studying it over the last month. Because the king of kings is in control. And what I love is you have this powerful king, one of the most powerful kings on planet Earth in human history. It's like it ceases to exist. But the word of God written at the same time, recording the same events about an obscure Jewish man and an obscure Jewish girl have survived the, uh, through time to give evidence of God's hand at work in the lives of his people. You see, we can say in the book of Esther, well, God doesn't show up in the book of Esther. No, no, no. God's all through this book. Because God is painting a picture of what is to come when Jesus goes onto the cross to set us free. The story ends where it begins, but it's completely reversed now. We have the same king at the same city that we started with, but Vashti is no longer the queen. Instead, a humble young girl has risen to prominence. And proud Haman is no longer in second in command. And his plan to annihilate the Jews has ended in destruction. Instead of Haman, humble Mordecai has now been raised and exalted and is bringing peace and prosperity to the Persian Empire in a previously unknown way. If I can have the worship team go ahead and come forward. So who are you going to be? Are you going to be Haman or are you going to be Mordecai and Esther? None of us want to be Haman. I, I don't run into too many people that are like, 
I really want to be prideful. I really want to, to do my own thing, and I really want to destroy an entire people group. I hope that's not you. I mean, those people exist in human history. I hope it's not you. But here's the thing is so often if we don't continually go back to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, what is it that you want for my life? If we don't continually come back to the word of God saying, okay, God, what are you saying and saying fresh? I can tell you, I've read the book of Esther multiple times before, but going through this series, God opened my eyes to things that have been in the book the entire time that I've never seen before. And that's the power of Scripture. Every time you approach Scripture in a different phase of your life, at a different time of your life, with different situations happening in your life, the Word of God is living and breathing and will jump off the page and will show itself to you in a way that you've never seen it before. And you need to continue to go back to Scripture. Like, well, I've read it before. So have I. But God showed me something new this time through that I hadn't seen before. And God wants to do the same for each and every one of us. But are we going to be committed to going back to the Word of God? You see, it's really easy to go through the motions and say, okay, well, it's, it's Christmas time, so this is how we need to behave. It's Easter time, this is how we need to be, uh, behave. We're going we're to show up and we're going to worship God and then we're going to go and do our own thing the rest of the year. That's not how this Christian thing works. God wants to make you new. God wants to set you free that the depression that you're holding on to, you can let go of it. The anxiety that you have, you can let go of it. The fear of your past, you can let go of it. The fear over sickness, you can let go of it because I know that there's a day coming. We see it in the book of Revelation. When Jesus comes again, Jesus is not coming back. I mean, he's still going to be humble because he's still the son of God. But when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back so that he can be put to death again. He's coming back so that he can come with a vengeance and take what's his. That we see in scripture where he comes back with a, a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He's coming back to take what is his. Will you be a part of that remnant? You see, it's really easy to say, well, I'm gonna come to the church on Easter. I'm gonna come to church and do this. I'm gonna come to church and do that. Are you worshiping God or are you doing it so you feel better about yourself? Are you gonna say, you know what, Jesus, you get it all. Or are you going to say, Jesus, you get what I want to give you when I want to give it to you? Because that's not following after Jesus. I see too many people in our culture that say, you know what, like, I'm a Christian because I go to church. No, you're not a Christian because you go to church. Because if that's the case, when I stand in my garage, I'm a car. I mean, we can identify ourselves however we want to apparently in the society today. But you don't get to do that in the kingdom of God. You don't get to self-identify where I'm a Christian because I feel like a Christian today. No, you're a Christian because you say, you know what? In my humility, I lay before Jesus and I say, you have control of my life and what you call me to do, I'll do. If you call me to go here, I'll go there. If you call me to preach the truth over here, I'll go and preach the truth over there. If you call me to repent of my wicked ways, I'll repent of my wicked ways. If you call me to go and tell someone else about Jesus, I'll go and do it. What you say, God, I'm going to do because you're in charge. Esther does that, Mordecai does that. Will you do it? God wants to do the same thing in you and, and there's moments where you say, well, I wanna do great things for God. Stop trying to do great things for God. Start doing what God calls you to do today. Because when you start trying to do great things for God, what are you doing? You're trying to do it yourself again. Yourself needs to die. 
It's what Jesus is calling you to do. Here's the thing I need you to realize today. You might hear this and you say, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do all of these great things. Is it what God's speaking to you? If it's not what God's speaking to you, then you're doing the wrong thing because you're trying to exalt yourself. What happens when you exalt yourself? You ultimately die to self. But will you lay yourself down before God and say, whatever it is, I'll do. I'll humbly do. That leadership that's in charge of me, I don't want to listen to them. But Jesus, remember in the story where he goes before Pilate, does he get in front of Pilate and say, hey, Pilate, this is what you really need to know about all of these leaders that are coming up behind uh, and, and accusing me and challenging me. They're all sinners themselves. They all should die too. But I'm the son of God and I can't set them free. So let me go and kill them. You don't hear Jesus do that. Are you the king of the Jews? Yeah. Can you pull yourself off the cross? Yeah. Are you going to? No. Because I'm going to die so that others may live. That is the heart of Christianity. And so today, I want to just encourage you. We're going to be singing Resurrecting as we go to close service. The altars are going to be open, but here's the question that you've got to ask yourself. I can't ask it. I can ask it of you, but only you can answer it. Will you allow yourself to die? You're like, well, that's a difficult question. Will you say that Jesus matters more to your life than anything else? Altars are going to be open, and for some of you, like, this is the first time maybe I've ever made this proclamation of, I want Jesus to be alive. We need to die to self so that we can be resurrected in Christ and be new creations. It's the whole point of today. If we miss that, then we've missed everything. It's not about having the, the nice Easter dress, nice Easter suit, having the perfect family picture. Those things are nice, but that means nothing in the, in the lens of eternity. Parents, let me just even encourage you with this. If you try taking a picture after church today, and like Pastor Frank and Brandy, I saw it before with Jeremiah. They're trying to get this perfect family picture, and Jeremiah's got his hands all in his face. That, that's life. It happens. It's going to be a cute picture anyways. But here's the thing I want you to encourage you with. That's not what today's about. Today's not about having the, the Instagram perfect family. Today's about Jesus Christ having control of your life. Because that's why he came. He humbly came and died on the cross for your behalf. And so some of you, you might be in the room and say, you know what, I've allowed myself to die to self before, but you need to do it again today because you're doing things for the wrong reasons. You're doing things for your pride, your attention. It's not about you. I say it all the time here. This church can function without me being here. It's not about me. If this church is ever about me, then I've messed up and I need to repent of my ways. Because the church is not about the pastor. It's about Jesus. And it's about Jesus being made famous through the people into the community so that lives are changed. Imagine we hit a day where all of a sudden on Easter Sunday, there's an entire section of people who desperately need Jesus. That's what it needs to look like. All of a sudden you say, we, we had a prayer meeting a couple months ago where so, uh, someone who was intoxicated stumbled in. I love that. Somebody who was in desperate need, didn't even know why they were here, but all of a sudden it enters into the presence of God. That's what church is. That's what we're for. That's what it's all about, is people that are far from God being reunited with God because it was all started with the cross. And then as we enter a period of no longer being under the law, but being in grace, it's now up to us to go and tell people about Jesus. That's what it's about. And you say, well, I'm uncomfortable doing that. Get over yourself. 
I'm uncomfortable coming to the altar because people may look at me and wonder what I did. Probably nothing different than anyone else in this room did. And if they ask you, here's the powerful thing. You get to share your testimony. Here's what I did. Here's who I was. Here's my mistakes. But Jesus... How dare we watch a movie like we did in the beginning where all of a sudden, here's what Jesus did, and you see that breath because he is alive. But then we come into church, and then we say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'll stand there, and I might do a little half-hand raise. If we can't raise our hands and shout and scream and celebrate Jesus here, you'll never do it out in the world. You never will. I'm gonna challenge you as we worship right now we're going to be moving in next week, starting the study, David, and attributes of a king. We looked at a king that was messed up. We're going to look at a king who is after God's heart, who, while he messed up in moments, continually turning back to God. And one of the moments, the key moments of David's life is this, is that he was willing to dance before the Lord and make himself to look like a fool. For some of you, raising your hands makes you feel like you're a fool. I don't care. Raise them anyways. Some of you, you need to do a jig this, uh, right now when we start worshiping. You need to come to the altar. You need to do something, and you need to move your body in a way that you never have before. You say, oh, I want revival. I want God to show up. I want God to move in our country. Then he needs to start with you. Because if he can't start with you, then how is he? We want God to show up and just change the hearts of the wicked. How do you think he's going to do that? He's going to use you as he has entered into you and you are a new creation because you're in Christ Jesus. It's time that we get up and start acting like Christians, acting like Christ. We start loving people and speaking truth to them, not just loving them or not just speaking truth to them. The problem is we do one or the other. We need to do both of them. We need to partner it together so that we look like Jesus. We act like Jesus. We worship like Jesus. We pray like Jesus. We live like Jesus. We spend time with people like Jesus. Because if we can't do it, why do we expect a world that doesn't have it together to have it together? It starts with us. So church, as we just go to end this service today and sing resurrecting, I need you to do something that you're uncomfortable with right now. And I don't have the answer what that is. It might be the altar. It might be standing up. It might be waving your hands in the air. It might be, I, I don't know. But you need to be willing to do something. If you want to see God do something new, it starts with you. So worship team, would you just lead us in church? Let's worship the King of Kings.